Ain't nobody got time for a mic stand. All right. Hey, if you've got your Bible, would you open up to Ecclesiastes? What book are we studying? Whoops. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, please. Uh, I've tried to get around and meet everyone this weekend. I know I've, I've failed at that. And so if we haven't met yet, my name's Cody Busby. I'm the senior pastor at South Shore Baptist. And I thank you for giving us your weekend, for getting locked away in the woods with us uh, for these last few days, uh, for singing beautifully, for studying well, for talking well, for eating well. Uh, you guys, it brings me so much joy to be around you and uh, to see the Lord at work in your hearts. Thank you for uh, a beautiful weekend together. Uh, brother, if you don't have a church home, uh, next Sunday we need to see you in church. If I lived in Braintree, I would go to Life Community Church in Braintree. A hundred percent. John Wilson is their pastor. He has a godly man with an incredible hairline. Every time I see him, it's, it's, it's like it grows forward. He's part Cro-Magnon. Um, <laughs> But that guy loves Jesus, and, uh, and they're a great church. And if you want to know more about them, you can talk to any of these guys right here in this row right here. If I lived in or around Situate, I would be at First Baptist Situate. Stephen McDonald is their pastor, a godly man that we all love and adore, and uh, a wonderful place. If I lived in Weymouth, I'd go to Tremont Temple Baptist Church <laughs> in Boston. Talk to uh, Dave Como about that. If I lived in Hingham, you're out of luck. No, uh, come to South Shore Baptist if you live in the area. But we, brother, you need to be in the church somewhere next Sunday. It's God's gift to you and uh, you would make our churches richer by being there. Uh, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 this morning. My assignment was chapters 9 through 12. Uh, we're just going to focus on the end of verse 11 through the end of chapter 12. I'll leave it to you to study um, and to look at chapters 9 and 10. Um, central, I believe central to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes is a Hebrew word that we learned Friday night, the word hevel. So in your Bible, it might be translated as vanity, it might be translated as meaningless, it might be translated as futile, but understanding and knowing what that word means and what it doesn't is absolutely essential to capturing the essence of the book of Ecclesiastes. I, personally, I don't like the translation meaningless because the book of Ecclesiastes is not telling us that life is meaningless. Perhaps no other book in the Bible commends the enjoyment of life more than Ecclesiastes. To eat and drink, to enjoy your days. We get that message over and over again in this book that has a, a negative reputation. People talk about it as being so pessimistic and yet over and over we're told to enjoy the things God has given us. Meaningless is not the right word. The word hevel, and I'll use that word a lot uh, this morning, the word hevel has a meaning something like this, that the thing that's hevel fails to achieve its purpose or it disappoints our expectations. So when the writer says work is hevel, he's not saying it's meaningless. He's not a, a nihilist or a cynic. He's just saying uh, work is not what you were made for to attach your soul to. If you try to attach your soul to it, it will disappoint you. So everything he identifies in this world, whether it's work, it's appetites, it's what, whatever the thing is. And when he says it's hevel, he's not saying those things are pointless or without meaning. He's saying your soul was not created for these things. You're not attached to them. I think Steve said it well yesterday. He said um, we're, it's not that the enjoyment of life is pointless. It's that it's not ultimate. Uh, and so hevel is the key word. I want you to repeat after me. Hevel. I want you to say it like a man. Hevel. hevel. 
All right, good job. Hevel, that's the word, all right? We experience Hevel in so many different places. And it's not just true of Christians. I think humanity in general, when we look at creation, we get this sense things aren't just right. One thing I love about the Bible is it never shies away from the complexities of life. It doesn't give us cliches for the enigmas, the difficulties, the unfairness, the injustice. It brings those things head on in front of us. And the whole world knows this to be true, that there's something wrong with the way things are. Ernest Hemingway is quoted as saying, life is a dirty trick. It's a short trip from nothingness to nothingness. Hevel to hevel. Uh, Stephen Hawking, dead astrophysicist, uh, he said this in his book, A Brief History of Time. He said, if we could arrive at a single unified theory to explain the whole universe, we still would not have an answer as to why it exists in the first place. Hevel. We can say, hey, here's how everything works. We don't know why it's here. Uh, Hevel shows up in so many places. In the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, there's a painting by Paul Gauguin. And it's the only painting he did where he put words on the, uh, on the palette. And so uh, in the upper left-hand corner of this painting are three questions written in French. Uh, who are we? Where are we going? Where are we from? It's questions of Hevel. What's going on in this world around us? And so when you and I dip our toes into Ecclesiastes and the, the teacher is telling us these things are futile, these things do not satisfy, it can create some turmoil, some chaos in us. Because the things we've given our hearts to, the things we've pursued, the things we thought this is where my identity is, suddenly they're uprooted and you and I are left disoriented. And so Ecclesiastes is kind of like... Um, You've driven past a high school before and students against drunk driving have put a crashed car in front of the high school. You've seen that. And uh, the message to all the high school students is uh, the person who drove this crashed car was drunk. That's why it's crashed. So don't do this. Ecclesiastes is a lot like that. Here we have the teacher telling us, look, I have traveled down all these roads that life can offer, every one of them is a dead end. They're all hevel. So what do we bank on? If all of this stuff is missed, it's like chewing bubble gum for dinner. If that's what all these things we've put our identity in turn out to be, is there anything that's certain? And the answer is yes. That's what the end of the book of Ecclesiastes gives us. From chapter 11, verse 7, to the very end of the book, it speaks of things that are certain for every single person. And so that's how we're going to wrap up our time together. I want to share with you five certainties for life from the end of Ecclesiastes. Follow along with me as I read. Chapter 11, we'll start in verse 7. The teacher says this, Light is sweet, and it's pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. Rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. So remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. 
Before the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain, on the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly, the doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades, when one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint. Also they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper loses its spring, and the caperberry has no effect. For the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home, and mourners will walk around in the street. Before the silver cord is snapped, and the gold bow is, or bowl is broken, and the jar is shattered at the spring, and the wheel is broken into the well, and the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute hevel, says the teacher. Everything is hevel. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There's no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. What is certain in our lives? Ecclesiastes does not leave us grasping at the mist. So let me share with you five certainties. Certainty number one is this. It's the opportunity of youth. We started in chapter 11, verse 7, from chapter 11, verse 7, down to chapter 12, verse 1. The teacher addresses youth, young people. We can, we can quantify youth in this way. Bible scholars say anyone under the age of 44 qualifies as young. Um, next year it'll be 45. <laughs> year after that it'll be under 46. Um, youth can certainly be uh, people who have not as many birthdays. I, I would say this. Um, youth also means those who aren't dead yet. Uh, you are the youngest you will ever be for the rest of your life right now. So the end of chapter 11 speaks to all of us. It may speak to young men in a unique way, but don't think this is just for the young guys and the old guys got this on lockdown. The writer speaks to all of us. And what he says here at the end of chapter 11 is that there's an, an incredible opportunity when we are young to enjoy life to the fullest. Look at what he says, verse 8. He says, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. He speaks to everyone in the room at this moment. If someone is given many years, uh, and if you're not given many years, if you're given a few years, whatever years God gives you, enjoy them all. Christians of all people ought to be able to enjoy life, to not be cynics, to not be pessimists, but to suck the marrow of life, all the joy out of it, and to love every day that God has given us, so that our days are not defined by loss or darkness or fear or anxiety, but defined by the good God of creation to whom we belong. If someone lives many years, verse 8, let him rejoice in them all. And then he says, remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. So dark days are coming. 
The, the teacher is telling us this. I've lived many years. We've got good days. And on a good day, here's one thing that's for certain. A hard day is coming. Now that coming hard day doesn't dampen the joy of the present day. If anything, it intensifies the sweetness of it. Because we know there's going to be a time to cry. We know there's going to be a time to mourn, a time to grieve, a time to die. And if this is not that time, I, I want to experience all the joy God has for me in this very moment. Verse 9, he continues to encourage young men. He says, rejoice while you are young. Be glad in your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. I mean, what incredible license to love life. Uh, to go after the things you're passionate about. To pursue the gifts that God has given you. But in the middle of verse 9, he pumps the brakes in a hard way. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. So does that mean if I enjoy life too much, I'll face God's judgment? Like he'll be mad at me? You were too happy. You didn't frown enough. That's not what the writer's saying. He's saying this. One of the major themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is to be enjoyed within the moral boundaries God has set. He teaches us how to enjoy life to the uttermost. And when I step outside of the boundaries God has set, I do not find joy. I find destruction. God is not keeping us from greater joy, keeping us from greater pleasure. He's the creator. He's our relationship, a relational God. He loves us and wants us to enjoy life. He tells us how. And so his boundaries keep us from attaching our souls to the hevel. He, his boundaries keep us from becoming self-centered, narcissistic, appetite-pursuing hedonists. So that I do everything for my flesh, everything for my appetite, everything for my happiness at the expense of the people around me. He keeps us from self-destruction. He keeps us from idolatry. So we're going to face judgment for all of that. And we've got to be aware. God gives us this life to enjoy it. Chapter 12, verse 1. Look at that. He says, still speaking to young people, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of adversity come. I, I love that he doesn't say remember your God he says remember your creator right? God's not my advisor it, he's not my do this guy uh, he is my creator apart from him I'm a tiny freckled pile of dust uh, with him I have life and I have purpose and I have fingers and I have a big nose and I've got uh, joy to experience in the days that he's given me he's my creator that gives me a posture of humility before him but it also gives me a posture of worship and praise look at what my creator has created me for to enjoy the years that he's given me not to just walk through life begrudgingly defined by loss or defined by failure but to enjoy the days he's given you to remember your creator is the mark of maturity in a young man to enjoy your days within the boundaries God has set a mark of maturity in a young man it makes for great friends great neighbors great husbands great fathers if I can look at my life look at my wife and my kids and not define them by their faults 
or by what could have been, but to say, look what God has given me. I want to enjoy this all the way, all the way. Um, my oldest daughter, her name is Emma. She's in her freshman year of college in Oklahoma, home for the holidays. And uh, we got to have a dad-daughter talk, and, and we talked a bit deeper about her experience this last semester. And she shared with me some of her fears and anxieties, things that had been uh, a real struggle for her. And, and then she said this, no clue that we are studying Ecclesiastes. She said this, um, uh, she goes, you know, I've got all these fears, all these things. I don't know where they're going to go or what's going to happen. Um, but I'm trying to remember Ecclesiastes and to enjoy my life while I'm young. I, I don't want to live in the fear of the unknown. I just want to enjoy this moment that God's given me. Uh, I was blown away. I'm a middle-aged man still trying to learn young man or young woman lessons. So are you. Uh, a youth that has spent ignoring God the judge, belittling God the creator, that life is hevel. So don't waste the opportunity of this day and rejoice in what God's given you. Walk humbly with the God of your creation. Second, uh, certainty in life. First is the opportunity of youth. Second is the frailty of life. So we go from speaking to, the, the teacher goes from speaking about youth and two young people to addressing those who are aging. So at the end of verse 1 through verse 5, uh, we have this metaphorical language. And in this poetic language, he describes what it's like to get old. And it's not awesome. So look at what he says uh, at the end of verse 1. He says, look, I have no delight in them before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. Here he's describing this loss of vitality, physical vitality, mental vitality. Verse 3, on the day when the guardians of the house tremble. Do we, do we grow more fearful as we age? The strong men Stoop. Do we grow weaker as we age? The women who grind grain cease because they are few. Do you know who the women who grind grain are? That's your teeth. There's going to come a day when you eat a lot more soft foods. <laughs> because you lose teeth. They go away. You get old. You don't have the pop and grill that you've always had. The women who grind grain cease because they are few. The ones who watch through the windows see dimly. D those are Bill illustrated this for us earlier when he went like this and said, I don't know what this says. Yeah. Verse 4. Uh, the doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird. So the sound of the mill fades. We, we lose our hearing, but then in the night we think we hear the sound of a bird and we pop up out of bed. It, it just We're crazy. That's just what that means. That's what comes with more birthdays. All of the daughters of song grow faint. Uh, also they're afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper loses its spring. And the caperberry has no effect. You know what caperberries were used for in antiquity? They were stimulants. They were aphrodisiacs. Did you ever think there would come a day when you would look at your bed as a place to sleep? <laughs> I mean, you get married, and then you're married, and you're married, and you're married, and you're married, and you just think, 
man, I, I got to get I got to get some sleep. <laughs> That's what's number one on my priority list. He describes in great vivid detail the frailty of life. The mere mortal is headed to his eternal home. Mourners will walk around in this street. Uh, you hear the story about the elderly couple who went to the doctor for a checkup and the old husband said to the doc, pulled the doctor aside and said, I'm worried about my wife. I think she's losing her hearing. Uh, and the doctor said, okay, here's a simple test. Go home and talk to her in your normal voice from across the room and get closer to her until she responds and then let me know how close she is. Let me know how that goes. Old husband said, okay. So that night, they're at home. She's standing at the, uh, at the stove cooking dinner, and he's across the kitchen from her, and he says in his normal voice, uh, dear, what's for dinner tonight? No response. So he cut the distance in half. Again, dear, what's for dinner tonight? Still no response, and he got right up behind her, and he said, honey, what's for dinner tonight? And she said, for the third time, we're having pork chops. <laughs> Something that's certain about living in a world broken by sin is that we will all fade in every way a human being can fade. Physically, mentally, every bit of vitality, those things will fade. And they don't fade in a uniform way. It's not an easy downward trajectory for everyone. And it doesn't just happen past a certain age. For some, has, I mean, hasn't the writer told us this? Some, it happens earlier. There's no, there's no method to it. We live in a world decaying under the weight of sin. And that takes a toll on our bodies. And it happens to every single one of us. It's certain for all of us. Look, I know that you led your team to the state championship in 68 and if it weren't for you they wouldn't have got there and you're a stud athlete and you used to be able to jump flat footed on a washing machine and you're just a physical specimen in your heyday but today for all of us our greatest success is just making it through a night's sleep without getting up to pee twice that's the new standard of success frailty hits all of us uh, an example of this I've seen one of my daughters um, works at a local grocery store and there's a 90 year old gentleman that bags groceries next to her and he used to be the sheriff of Suffolk County and he was on the school committee for the city of Boston and he was assistant attorney general and today he bags groceries and on his break he sits in his car and smokes his cigarettes and I'm not in a place to evaluate the life that man is leading, but just to say here, he lives out the truth of Ecclesiastes. We all grow frail. We all decline. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. What an incredible place to be in your life when everything you thought was strength is stripped away and you can say, I have everything because I have Christ. My teeth are gone, my hearing's gone, my eyesight's gone, caperberry, boom, way past the expiration date. I've got everything because I've got Christ. And what a precious thing to learn that lesson before you lose your strength and your vitality. I got big muscles. I'm the guy, I'm the bro. All of that is hevel 
I've got what matters. I've got Christ. Our frailty is probably one of the greatest gifts God gives us to help us rely on Him and trust in Him and not on ourselves. The frailty of life is a certainty for all people. Opportunity of youth, frailty of life. Certainty number three is the reality of death. It's the reality of death. Verses 6, 7, and 8, he still uses poetic language to describe for us now what death is like. Before the silver cord is snapped, the gold bowl is broken, the jar is shattered at the spring, the wheel is broken into the well, dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute hevel, says the teacher, everything is hevel. Uh, I did some research, and I came across this statistic. One out of one people die. Something we all have in common in this room is there will be a funeral for every single one of us. We are going to die. Christians have no problem talking about death or facing it. We shouldn't anyways. And it's not because we're morbid, uh, but it's because we have an answer for it. We know the one who has conquered death and who gives hope to those who trust in him. Christians know that death is not extinction. Christians know that our space here is temporary. We're citizens of a distant country, a different country. We belong to a different Lord and King altogether. And this life, Christians know, is the shortest of the life we will live. This life compared to eternal life is no comparison at all. It is just the blink of an eye. Your life is but a vapor, like a mist. The rest of the world faces death with different eyes and a different thinking. But death is not extinction. It's a change of place. It's a, it's a change of status. Uh, it's moving from this temporary world to the eternal world. And so Christians can look at death a little bit with a smile and a shrug. Yeah, I'm going to die. Praise God. My body is falling apart. I'm racked with fear. I fail over and over. Praise God. I'm going to enjoy this day that he's given me. And I'm going to enjoy the forever day he has waiting for me. Uh, praise God. Now I don't have a sick fascination with death. I'm not longing to be there just as soon as possible. But brothers, I can't wait. And the more time I spend with wise men and women of the Lord. Who face their mortality with grace and mercy and wisdom. I want to be like them. I want to get to that day having lived life fully in the way God has, want, has set for me to do. It, I want to enter into eternity with a dance and a song and joy for that incredible life that is to come for all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. The fool refuses to face his own mortality. And likewise, the fool refuses to face his own eternality. We all live forever. There is no question about that. But it's a question of experience, eternal placement and experience with God or apart from God. The fact of our mortality should add urgency to our love for Christ and confidence as we look at the days to come. We're all going to die. I've, uh, I've done uh, in the past 15 years over 100 funerals. That's not a lot by some measurements. I've done funerals 
where we had to do a lot of work ahead of time to come up with nice things to say about the person. And I've done some Christian funerals, just the sweetest, most incredible, remarkable worship services I've ever been a part of, ever. And what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Don't leave us saying he was a good man. Let us say he was God's man. So live this day that he's given you for his glory and for your joy. And in all your frailty, all the struggles, depend on God. Show us how to trust God, how to walk with him. Teach those in your life around you what it means to walk with God as you walk towards death. And when we put you in the grave... Let us do it with joy for the life you've lived and the life you have yet to see and experience as you live in eternity with Jesus Christ. Certainty number four. We're going to die. Fourth certainty is the speaking shepherd. So Ecclesiastes is structured in this uh, unique way. It's written by Solomon, but the bulk of the material is not Solomon speaking necessarily. Um, you start chapter 1, first 11 verses is Solomon setting the stage. And then he introduces a character, the teacher. And the teacher teaches all the way through to chapter 12, verse 8. So it's, it's like you're watching this story unfold as the, the teacher, the preacher... Uh, speaks to the assembled worshipers and gives them his wisdom and his insight on life. When we get to verse 9, the voice changes. We go back to Solomon. And he says this, in addition to the teacher, right, that's the character he's introduced, in addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods. Those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. Look at this at the end of verse 11 in your Bible. The sayings are given by one shepherd. If the word shepherd is not capitalized in your Bible, take your pen, mark it out, put a big old capital S there. This is a reference to God. Now, nerdy scholars would say, well, it's a bit ambiguous. We're not sure. <laughs> Here's the deal. Um, <laughs> he calls him the one shepherd. Uh, that word one is used of God in some really important places. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the, uh, the Jewish confession of faith is called the Shema. And it starts this way, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is Echad. That's the word, one. The same word here. He is the Echad shepherd, the one shepherd. Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. And throughout the Old Testament, we have this image, imagery of God being a shepherd, caring for us like a shepherd cares for his sheep. When he says, these things are given by the one shepherd, he is telling us, the God of creation speaks his word to you. Into the windy hevel of life comes the voice of the shepherd. And according to verse 9, his words are wise and weighed and explored and arranged. And in verse 10, they are words of truth. Everything is hevel. The shepherd speaks truth. Everything is futile. The shepherd speaks truth. Not a day in your life the shepherd has not been speaking truth. He goes on to tell us that the shepherd's words are like cattle prods. That's vivid imagery. Get going, cow, and you go. That's one way the word of God works in our lives. It's not just only like a cattle prod. It's also like deeply embedded nails that drive truth deep into us. 
He's giving us all this imagery of God in this last chapter and a half. God's the judge, the creator. He's the one shepherd who guides you with words of truth. He doesn't leave us to navigate the hevel on our own. He's not some distant God watching from afar as we stumble through life towards our funerals. The one shepherd has spoken and is speaking. Uh, I went to a men's conference many, many years ago, big arena. And this, and this wonderful man of God was imploring the men in attendance to read their Bibles. He was talking about the value of the spoken word of God. And, and he said this, he said, how many of you guys have read the instruction manual to your lawnmower? And you know, all these guys raise their hands. He's like, look at these weirdos. Yeah, but the Bible is just like an instruction manual for life. And on the inside, my soul said, no, it's not. Who loves an instruction manual? They are situational. You read the same instruction manual every day? No, you don't. They are situational. Um, I mean, they, can be, they have purpose. They have help. They're often written in Chinglish, and that's hard to understand. <laughs> so you go to it in case of emergency or for some practical... And the, Bible's not like, the Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is like a combination treasure map, love letter, oxygen. It's like a treasure map. You, you mine it for gold every time you sit with it. And, and quite frankly, if I've got that kind of treasure waiting for me, I'm not going to come to it only in case of emergency. I know I need what it has for me this day. It's like a love letter. It tells me how the God, my creator, chapter 12, verse 1, out of his grace and mercy and abundant sovereignty, has poured himself out for me, gave his son to die on the cross in my place. This God whom I have rebelled against, whom I'm, I've chosen heaven over him, he loves me and has sent his son for me. It's like oxygen. If I don't have it, I'm going to die. I have to have it. You have to have it. Brother, read your Bible. The, the writer here in Ecclesiastes has talked to us about youth and aging and death. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, and it is all about the treasure of God's word. You know what it says to young men? Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. You know what it says to those who are aging? Verse 50. This is my comfort and my affliction. Your promise has given me life. You know what it says to those who are facing death? Verse 25. My life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. Brother, if you are Catholic, read your Bible. And if you are Protestant, read your Bible. The one shepherd speaks words of truth. Every day you've got an opportunity for an audience with the God of creation. And this word speaks to your soul. If you're not a reader, be a Bible listener. Now, you, go, you listen to that homily or you listen to that sermon and you get that word in you that way and you get with brothers around the word and you get it in you that way. But brother, you sit with the word open or the word turned on and you listen and you hear the one shepherd speak. This is a certainty. In all the heaven of life, God is speaking. He is never silent. So listen to the voice of your shepherd. Fifth and final certainty is the final judgment. Uh, verses 13 and 14. When all has been heard, 
The conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands. So all's been heard. The teacher has given us all of this material. He's brought it all together. Said all that he has to say. Solomon gives the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. I'm going to say it this way. Fear God. Do what he says. When you go home. Friend. Wife. Child says. What did you learn this weekend? Here's what you're going to say. I'm not going to live for the hevel. I'm going to fear God. And do what he says. Vincent talked to us a bit last night about the fear of God. Now, the fear of God is not the same as a fear of snakes or a fear of monsters or a fear of proctologists. Uh, it is a very different fear altogether. Uh, fearing God does not mean that we live a terrorized existence as if we have to uh, you know, live in fear of upsetting him because he might zap us. That's not the fear of God. As Christians, we don't have this cowering, slave-like fear of the Lord, but rather we have a relational, reverential, humble fear of the Lord, like a son to his father. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the difference between fearing God and being afraid of God. If I had not known that God the Son took on flesh and died on the cross in my place and he ate the whole wrath of God for my sin, if I did not know that, I would live every day terrified of the God who made me and who I'll stand before one day. But because I know that his love is shown in this great way, this astounding way, that God the Son took my sin so that I could have his righteousness and a right standing before the Father in that judgment day, I can fear him in reverence and in awe and in worship and love and affection. It is a relational fear between me and the Father. So we've got to fear God have that kind of relationship with him where we reverence him and we have to do what he says. Isn't that what he told young men earlier? Live within the moral boundaries that God has set. Fear God and do what he says. Hevel, 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 hevel. The shepherd speaks, I do what he says. My life isn't attached to the hevel. It's attached to the word of the speaking shepherd. I'm going to do what he says. Because we're not going to find any joy or fulfillment outside of these life-giving words of God. You know, everything in creation does what God tells it to do except for humans. Right? Wind blows, rain falls, frogs ribbit, birds chirp, humans. I'm going to do it my way. Fear God and do what he says. Ecclesiastes starts with our lives under the sun. The bulk of it is you and I living on this planet under the sun. But it doesn't close that way. Uh, this book closes with you and I in view of our creator, the shepherd, the judge. We've lived out our lives, youth, frailty, death, under the sun. Now we stand before the judge. And Solomon says this is for all humanity. This is true for everyone. It's true for every person to die once and then face the judgment. And so what that means, what that tells us about Ecclesiastes is that Ecclesiastes doesn't teach that nothing matters. It teaches us that everything matters. Everything. It, it matters if 
I give my soul to the hevel. It matters if I listen to the words of my one shepherd. Everything matters. And when we read the book of Ecclesiastes in light of the New Testament, well, we're pointed to Jesus, who in Ecclesiastes is our one shepherd. And in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. Here's what you, we've been building to this moment the whole weekend that you would know this. Brother, you will face God in judgment one day. Every single one of us will. And for many, that will be a terrifying moment when we stand before God and say, but I did my best with what I had. I was baptized as a baby. I was baptized as an adult. I did religious things. In your name, did I not do this, 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 and this? And I'm a veteran, and I'm a good citizen, and I was a good, and I, I was a charitable giver. And we defend ourselves by saying, look at how well I loved the hevel. And the judgment rendered on that day is final. For many, that day of judgment will be terrifying eternally. For others, it will be a day of incredible joy. When you stand before God, your judge, your creator, and you say, I have no defense. I know my sin. Nothing I've done gives me entrance to your glory. But I've trusted Christ. And he took my sin. And he gave me his righteousness. And that's when God, the creator, the judge, the speaking shepherd says... Son, enter into your rest. Don't sell your soul to heaven. You are known and loved by God. Sometimes we shy away from talk of judgment. It, 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 it feels so uncomfortable and, and it's fire and brimstone and all of that. Brother, there, listen, you will either bow or you will burn. And I cannot soften that message at all and it should not be softened because you are too precious and too valuable and you mean too much for your life to go where God does not want it to go and he's made another way for us through Jesus Christ so would you trust him as your savior would you say I'm not going to live for this junk anymore I'm tired of it I want my soul to be attached to life to words of truth and give your trust to Jesus Christ for your salvation Ecclesiastes is an incredible book of the Bible because it's not pessimistic and it's not just some big frown fest. It is light in the darkness to tell us all this other stuff is straight garbage. But there's one shepherd, your judge, your creator who knows you and loves you and has made a way for you. Five certainties in life, youth, aging, death, the words of the shepherd and the judge's verdict. And so this has been the goal of Ecclesiastes, that believers would feel the weight of the curse of sin and the burden of life's enigmas, and we'd turn our eyes towards God and rest in His purposes and delight whenever possible in His beautiful and disfigured world. It's a book of hope. It's a book of peace. It's a book of joy. It's a book that allows us to live our days under the sun with maximum joy and trust in the Lord. C.S. Lewis was right. He said this, Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. And brother, so ends the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the word of the Lord. 
Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, there are men in here that this is their appointed time. This is their moment that you set in eternity for them to hear the gospel and to trust you as their Savior. Give this brother boldness today to turn his life to you, to trust Jesus Christ and not himself, to acknowledge his sin, all of its futility, and to rest completely, solely, totally on Jesus Christ once and forever. Thank you for a Savior like that. And thank you for a salvation like this. That is true salvation. And not a wish. And not a possibility. It is a certainty in the midst of all of this heaven. Thank you for opening our eyes this weekend. To all the falsehoods we attach our souls to. And even... For those who walk with you by faith, we are still drawn to prosperity as a defining mark of your blessing. And we're drawn to the praise of men and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. All of these things, Father, thank you for exposing the futility of it to us this weekend. Help us to live for what matters, to live in the truth within your precious boundaries. That we would enjoy our days to the fullest. And we would go to our graves hearts overflowing for who you are and what you have done. God, our creator, we praise you. God, our speaking shepherd, we adore you. God, our judge, we trust you. Jesus Christ, our savior, you are our everything. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.